What If the Len Bias Story, hosted by Jordan Ritter Khan, is The Ringer's latest narrative podcast. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on the Book of Basketball 2.0 feed. Here's a quick trailer. You've heard his name, Len Bias, 1980s phenom, second pick in the NBA draft. And then cocaine, tragedy, one of the most shocking deaths in sports history. 35 years later, Bias's legacy is still making an impact. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, this is What If, the Lynn Bias story. I'm Jordan Ritter Khan. It's New York, New York, presented by FanDuel. The MLB season is in full swing, and you can step up to the plate with FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub, filtered by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays all on one page. Plus, bet the live same-game parlays for every MLB game and track your game and bets live with box scores and play-by-play. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of Major League Baseball. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 100 Gambler or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah. A toast to breakfast. Coming up on New York, New York. I'm going to have to eat a little crow. I thought Nets and Bucks was over. And I thought wrong because the injury bug has gotten in the way. Bad news for Brooklyn. They've got themselves a series. How about the Islanders? They continue to amaze, and the Yankees continue to stink. Let's make that perfectly clear. The Mets, on the other hand, tough Sunday, but they know how to win. We got Kerry Kittles coming up. We got a ton of voicemails coming up. Got a couple of picks for Monday night in the NBA. It's a loaded show. It's good to be back. New York, New York, presented by FanDuel Sportsbook, is coming up next. Welcome in New York, New York, rocking and rolling right here on the Ringer Podcast Network. And I'm actually going to apologize right out of the gate. And that takes a lot for me. Trust me on that. Takes a lot. I proclaimed a couple days ago on this podcast that the Net Bucks series was O-V-E-R. I stand by that proclamation after what I saw the first two games. Even after Brooklyn lost game three, which was a winnable game, which was still, you know, a golden opportunity to go up 3-0, I still thought they were in really, really good shape. And that's without James Horton. Well, all of that went completely out the window the minute you saw Kyrie Irving go down in game four. Because Brooklyn needs Kyrie Irving. We know he's on a different planet. We know he says some wacky stuff. But he is an all-world talent. 
And without Irving and without Horton, you know what you've seen with this Brooklyn team? They don't have players who can create. And a lot of those good looks that other guys were getting and knocking down the Joe Harris's of the world, the Blake Griffins of the world, Brown, Shamit, you name it. Those looks, they're MIA. They are nowhere to be found against the Milwaukee Bucks who are clearly getting chippy, are clearly getting physical, and good, good. This idea that like it's a bad thing, unless you're a net fan. Now, I'm going to ignore the net fan now for a minute. But I'm talking about basketball fans. I like that there's a little chippiness. I like that there's some legitimate defense being played. Good. I love it. That's Milwaukee's way in their path to try to get back in and, dare I say, win this series. No, Drew Holiday said it right before game three. Great. They've been very chippy. Tucker, who, by the way, could play for my team any day of the week. He's a dog. I love that, dude. Middleton's getting after it. Holiday's getting after it. Even Connaughton's getting after it. The Bucs wiped the floor with Brooklyn second half of this game. They had a ton of threes. They put really good defense. Durant got going in the third quarter, and you thought for a minute when Brooklyn got this to a nine-point game that maybe they'd have a pulse in the fourth quarter. Middleton banging the three right at the end of the quarter was basically game-set match. It was game, set, match. Fourth quarter was nothing to discuss. I, I guess the biggest talking point in the fourth quarter is when Steve Nash is going to wave the white flag on the game. But let's be honest. This game was over in the fourth quarter. So whether Steve Nash took his starters out with five minutes to go, four minutes to go, who the hell knows? And it didn't really make much of a difference. And now, from a sports standpoint and from the standpoint of what I do, which is talk about this stuff and have fun with this sort of stuff. Tuesday night now is a fascinating, fascinating scenario for the Brooklyn Nets because they now have been hit in the mouth a little bit. They now have some serious adversity they're going to have to deal with. I have no clue on the status of James Harden at this point. I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to pretend to be. Kyrie Irving, you got to think it's highly unlikely he's going to be able to give it a go with the way his ankle basically snapped, even with the x-rays being negative just a couple of days later. I rely on Dr. Chow a lot, especially during football season. I think Dr. Chow's fantastic. I think his video breakdowns are great. Giving him a little free pub and free love, great. He deserves it. He's good at what he does. He basically tweeted out about an hour, hour and a half ago. He doesn't see Irving or Harden returning for this series. And you know what my initial thought would be? If neither guy can play at any point here in this second round, I don't like Brooklyn's chances of winning this series. And I know it's a total drastic about face to what it was just five or six days ago. But the reality is this. Injuries can dramatically change the feel and the landscape of a playoff series. And if you need a reminder of that, think about the NBA Finals a couple of years ago with Kevin Durant and his status and everything that went down between the Warriors and the Raptors. Well, Katie got hurt. Then he got hurt again. Golden State wasn't going to survive that. Brooklyn is not surviving Milwaukee without Irving and without Harden. 
because I think Milwaukee will continue to be physical. Yeah, Brooklyn will get a couple of calls at home. Their role players might do a little bit more. Milwaukee's a better team, top to bottom, if indeed that's the case. No shame in that if you're Brooklyn. That's just the reality of it. So I I don't know what prayers you got to say if you're an F fan over the next two days. You better hope and pray you get an answer in a positive way for Horton, which to me is more likely at this point than Kyrie. But what do I know? Again, I'm not Dr. Chow. I'm curious, and this was something that I would have absolutely asked Steve Nash if I were, you know, participating in the Zoom right after the game. Were the Nets being overly cautious with Harden because they felt like they were in control of the series? Or is that not the case at all? I don't get the sense that it's the case, but I'd like to know the answer to that question. I would be intrigued, to say the least. So I'm glad somebody actually asked Nash this question post-game. Here was the head coach. I don't want James to be rushed back. If he's able to play next game or the game after, that's fantastic. If he's not, I don't want to rush him back. Um, and jeopardize um, doing something worse or making this a long-term injury. Um, so we'll see. We'll have to take all these things into account and evaluate them and try to make a smart decision. But it sounded that it doesn't seem like the 2-2 series predicament is going to change anything for Steve Nash. Now, maybe it will internally. I, I have no idea. I got to see Horton play at some point, if he can. If there's any way he can find his way onto the basketball court, he's got to try to play. If not in game five, then in game six. We saw it with Anthony Davis, and it didn't work out with Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis tried to rush him back, played about four or five minutes, and it was obvious to anybody who was watching, he was cooked. That was just not where he needed to be. But you know what? Sometimes in sports, you got to see that. Because you admire that sort of, will to try and fight and be out there and help your teammates and try to help your teammates win in any which way you can. We're going to learn a lot, a lot about the intestinal fortitude of the Brooklyn Nets now who got some serious adversity to deal with. Team that's kind of been coasting along all year despite all the injuries. Well, they got themselves a fight. I didn't see it coming a few days ago. I think a whole lot of folks around the NBA didn't see it coming a few days ago. Injuries, momentum, that ball gets rolling a different way, and now we have a much different looking series on our hands. Net reaction right out of the gate. All right, Sarudi, he's on the horn. Yo, yo, it's Jack from Westchester. You never root for injuries. I hope that everybody gets better. But, man, if the Nets lose this series, I that would be the happiest sports thing that has happened in my life. Um, other than Other than this Knicks situation, since probably 2017 Yankees, I would be just all of these callers that you're getting talking about join the bandwagon or we're, we're here, get used to us just to watch them all fall off would be so beautiful. I I hope that they that all of their dudes come back and that they get beaten anyway. Um, also, what the fuck is going on with the Yankees? All right, see ya. Jack, we're going to save the Yankee disaster for a little bit. They have zapped the enthusiasm out of me. Uh, I said this yesterday when I was doing television on SNY. We're going to get to it a little bit later on in the podcast. As angry, as like emotionally frustrated as I was a week ago, yelling and screaming, F-bombs, demanding change, the whole deal, 
It's a week later. It's the same shit. I mean, like, you think the Yankees are making a change. You got another thing coming. We'll save that. We'll save that, though. Um, the one thing about Brooklyn, I want to see them go down as much as anybody. I don't want it to be because of injuries. Like, now Brooklyn and their fan base will have this ultimate ace in the hole. And the ace in the hole is going to be, well, we lost to Milwaukee, but Kyrie and Ur- and uh, Harden didn't play. So if they would have played, we would have won. Like, you're going to hear that now all summer and all fall if Brooklyn goes down in this series. But we got a series on our hands. And I think the fortunes of this series, the medical status of Mr. Irving and Mr. Harden, wow. Talk about a dramatic and a drastic turn of events. My goodness. Now, you want something good to feel good about in New York sports. There are the Mets who we will get to in a little bit. But how about the New York freaking Islanders? This is a first, by the way. This is a New York, New York first. So you guys can document this. You guys can make note of this. Uh, The hockey fans out there can celebrate this. We're working hockey in right out of the gate. How can you not? When the Islanders go down to Tampa and win the first game of this conference final. And the most important thing that I saw here in this victory is the fact that on five on five, the New York Islanders could skate with, play with, and be right there with the explosive Stanley Cup champions. There was not a sense of intimidation. There was not a sense of we don't belong. They were right there with the Islanders. Or right there with the Lightning, excuse me. They were right there with them. You combine that with Varlamov, who is playing out of his freaking mind in net. You saw it in the Boston series. You saw it again here in game one. Varlamov has been lights out. Barry Trotz obviously going to ride that hot hand. And then you get to Matty Barzell, who now has scored in four of the last five games. And we talk about big players needing to make big plays in big games. Barzell has come alive. It, in many ways, has sparked the New York Islander offense. He got the first goal going. You get a second one in the third period. All right, Varlamov gives up one late, but you get the first game in this series against Tampa when you lost to them a year ago, and you know they're the reigning Stanley Cup champs. This is also important for the Isles because it allows you to breathe a little bit. It allows you to play free and easy going into game number two, and it also sets up what will be a raucous zoo. I mean, that's really the best way to look at it. It is going to be an incredible scene Thursday night. Back at the barn, back at the Coliseum. At worst, it's 1-1. And if you're getting greedy, they're a dream. It's 2-0 Islanders. That's how you answer for last year. Starting off this series with an absolute bang, I thought the Islanders, in order to win this series, they had to get one of the first two. So far, so good. Goaltend is terrific. Your best player is terrific. And the Islanders keep finding ways. Talk about that resourcefulness, that resiliency. Maybe uh, the Brooklyn Nets will take a page out of that playbook. Or better yet, maybe the Yankees will take a page out of that playbook. Oh, we can. That ain't happening. Not anytime soon, at least. We got a loaded show. Tons of voicemails because it was a loaded weekend. We didn't even get to any of the baseball that's going on. The Yankees continue to be a dumpster fire. The Mets, despite a rough Sunday, had a hell of a weekend against the San Diego Padres. So our voicemails across the board. Kerry Kittles, 
the former New Jersey net. He was on a team that played in the NBA Finals a couple of times. He's got a net podcast. He's going to check in as we set the stage for what will be a very tense Barclays Center in Game 5. We're also going to set the stage for Monday night. I'm going to be in Atlantic City. That means a couple of beaks are coming your way for the NBA playoff game. So we got you covered every which way. Jam-packed weekend. Good to be back. Let's rock and roll. New York, New York. Carrie Kittles is coming up next. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. So, folks, before we get to Kerry Kittles, audio is going to be via Zoom. My recorder didn't want to cooperate as we were doing the interview, and I'm giving you guys a little bit of a heads up, a friendly heads up. If you notice a little different sound coming out of my voice, it's from the beauty and the power of Zoom and not my recorder. So, Kerry Kittles, up next. So, the Brooklyn Nets now have themselves a series as the Milwaukee Bucks win game three. They win game four in resounding fashion, and now the Nets got to figure out what's going on with one Kyrie Irving. Let's welcome in a guy who knows a thing or two about playing big postseason games. He was doing so back in the day in New Jersey in the old Continental Airlines Arena. He hosts the New York Post Net Podcast. My main man, Kerry Kittles. What's happening, Kerry? Hey, what's going on? How you doing, man? Gary, I'm doing okay, man. First of all, thanks for doing this. No Second of all, I got to eat a little crow here because after the Nets won game two and smoked the Milwaukee Bucks, now maybe this is me being me, I pronounced this series over. I said, it's done. I said, there ain't going to be anything to watch and discuss. But when you see Kyrie Irving go down and now you have to wonder about him and James Harden going into game five and Milwaukee wins these two games. Kerry, I got to walk back those words, bro. I got to take it back, dude. <laughs> yeah, you know, the playoffs is interesting like that. I I, I think um, you know, I, I you know, look before the series started, I had it going seven and I understood that um, you know, the Bucks definitely pose a serious threat to the Nets and where how they're constructed with um, you know, just how Giannis plays and the amount of attention that he draws. And, you know, and and just having a couple of games at home, you know, I figured that they would win their home games and make it a series. And so it's proven to be that way. And gosh, you know, having to lose Kyrie now um, for hopefully he's back sooner rather than later. But uh, definitely a big blow for the Nets heading into uh, game five at home. Not that you're a doctor, even though you have that wonderful Villanova background, even though I don't have my Otto the Orange Syracuse guy in the back. Uh, I miss those days, my friend. I wish I had that just for you. But what's more likely at this point, realistically speaking, getting James Harden back? Or getting Kyrie Irving back for this series? What's your take on that? Well, you know, I love to see Harden back just because of his uh, facilitating. I think that the way he plays and the way he makes the game easier for everybody else. You're watching Kevin Durant in particular have to work so hard to get looks, clean looks, because they're all over him. So Harden definitely opens the floor for for everybody out there that's on the court with him. Um, But listen, Kyrie has been great all year. You know, he's averaging 27 points. I mean, he's just a great offensive talent. So the Nets will definitely need one, if not both, to beat the Bucs because the Bucs will definitely play better in Brooklyn. It will be a, a close game, I think, in game five. And the Nets have to, you know, take care of business at home. You know, Kerry, thinking about what Kyrie and Horton have been able to do for this team, they're exquisite players. We know that. 
But their ability to create, it's gotten so many good looks and easy looks for so many guys. And Joe Harris is a terrific player. He's a great knockdown shooter. But when you take Harden off the court and then you're going to take Kyrie off the court, all of a sudden now you got this physical Milwaukee team that can get up in his grill. The shot selection is not going to be as good. So let's say that both of these guys are out in game five. How does Steve Nash and how do the Brooklyn Nets get better looks for guys not named Kevin Durant? Yeah, that's going to be a challenge. I I, I think, you know, those role players you mentioned, um, you're going there, Jeff Green and others, Shamit is another role player that feeds off of space and court space in particular. And so when you have those guys on the court, Harden and Irving, yeah, I mean, you have a lot more court space because, you know, the defense is keyed in on those guys. But when those guys aren't out there, now the defenders can be more aggressive. They can stay home on shooters. So, you know, I don't know what the Nets going to have to be able to do to regroup to be able to create more court space. But I think, you know, it's going to be a tough challenge. You know, now the, the Bucks have figured things out. You know, now you know your opponents. Now you played them four games. You know, there's the sky report is out the window. Now you know how each other plays and, you know, what to look for out there. And so, you know, the adjustments now are going to be really, really subtle adjustments. And I think the Nets having to lose their, their you know, primary ball handlers in Irving and Harden, it's going to be a challenge. You're probably laughing, thinking about the defense that's being played in this series and back to when you were playing in the league, when guys are up in your grill and, you know, the rules weren't what they are right here in 2021. But in general, Kerry, has the physicality of Milwaukee defensively the last two games and the fact that they've been able to get away with some chippiness. Listen, I love it. I love hard nose, good defense. That's that's my era. I've been watching guys like you, watching Starks, Jordan. I couldn't stand them, but you get my deal. Yep. Have you been surprised with the way these last couple of games have been officiated? No, this is playoff basketball. I, I think it picks up a little bit more with, with physicality, right? They, they allow a little bit more than they do in a regular season. So you can almost expect that. Um but look, you know, after game uh, three in Milwaukee, we heard or we read Holiday's uh, comments and he said, we're going to try to muck up this game, right, and muck it up. And they've been doing that <laughs> and uh, and sort of getting away with that physicality. So the Nets have to now respond, right? you got to be more aggressive. you got to expect the contact. You can't, you know, cry to referees for fouls. And you have to play through all of that stuff. And so that's the adjustment the Nets have to make uh, moving forward. And I think they will do that. I think they'll – They'll make the necessary adjustments. You know, I, I love to see Bruce Brown out there because he's a really physical player. Now we saw in, in, in game four, uh, Jeff Green come back. So that's going to be a, another another bonus for the Nets to be able to spread the court. Now, now Brooke Lopez has to go out there and guard, you know, a, a spot up four player. So um, it's going to be a fun series to watch. I have it going seven and it's going to be a nail biter. I can guarantee you that. Kerry, I love when we get the opportunity to learn about a team. And now we're going to really learn about, you know, the toughness and the chutzpah and the guts, you name it, of this Brooklyn team that has not played in these sort of big games. And it makes me think of your team. And when you guys had that great regular season, Jay Kidd, Kenyon Martin, Richard Jefferson, and I know it's a first-round series and it's maybe a little different than a second-round series where if you lose, you got a game six and maybe potentially a game seven in your back pocket. As far as your team in that run in New Jersey, from a pressure standpoint, was that game against Indiana, that game five, that crazy game five with Reggie Miller, was that like the most pressure early on that you felt with that group as a whole? 
Yeah, I, I think so. I, I, I can remember that game and, and, and leading up to that. And, you know, you're trying to close out Reggie Miller. Okay. And it's just, you know, he's a Hall of Famer. He's, he's prime time clutch player. Um, and the Pacers were stacked. They had so many good players. So I, I think that was a moment for us as a team. If we can move past that experience and just figure our way of gutting out that win in overtime or double overtime, whatever it was, I think it was double overtime. Um, you know, it, it really gave us that confidence moving forward as a unit. So I think until you in that moment and have to figure out how to win a tough game like that against an opponent that just won't go away, <laughs> you know, it just builds that character. It just builds that strength in you as a group, just knowing, hey, you know what? If we could do this against Reggie Miller and the, and the Pacers. You know, we could do it against anybody else. I've always wondered, you're on teams. They went to the playoffs early on in New Jersey, but everything changed for you guys. The minute the J.K. trade was made, yep. you're a part of these teams. Did you feel it right away? Yes. Did it take like a month? When was no. the moment for you, Kerry Kills, where you said, holy smokes, this is a whole new ball game here in New Jersey? Right away. I would say right away. First, okay. first day of training camp. First day of training camp, you get in, all the guys in the court, you know, you figure out how you're going to play, whatever, whatever. Coach puts it in their system. And then we start scrimmaging, you know, in practice. And we're like, oh, wow, we have some really good pieces. We have shooters. We have athletes. We have depth. We have size. <laughs> we, we know we have guys that love to play defense. You know, we have guys that are very unselfish. We had all the characteristics of a very good team from day one. And then we had a leader in JK that you mentioned who just made the game that much easier for all of us. So we knew right away. I mean, that first whistle went off and practice was over. We huddled up. I was like, oh, my gosh, we're going to be pretty good this year. <laughs> and so, you know, it just took some preseason games for us to get on the court and compete against our opponents where it just confirmed what I knew from day one, which was we were going to be a pretty good team. I didn't know we would go to the NBA Finals, but I knew we'd be a really good team. What was the better net team? The first one that lost to Shaq and Kobe or the second one that lost to San Antonio? I think the first one. First, the first one? Why? Yeah. Just because you guys had more regular season success? Yeah, we just had that We just had that, that newness, that, you know, that innocence about us. You know, it was just we really wanted to prove it more to each other. Um, I just like the energy that we played with that first year. We were definitely good the second. Don't get me wrong. I think the first year we were just just that much better. Well, and you guys went up against an all-time dynasty. And I don't want to take that away from Duncan, who to me, Kerry is the greatest power forward that I've ever seen play. No question. But I mean, those three, those Laker teams, you think about it, bro. They were with Shaq, Kobe, they were unstoppable, man. And I tell you what, when you watch those teams from the early 2000s and the success that all those teams had, the Spurs, Lakers, whoever else. There was always a complimentary players to those superstars, right? You know, you mentioned Shaq and Kobe, but it was Derek Fisher. Robert Ory. It was no Robert Ory. It was Rick Fox. Those guys. It would mean Devin George came to, to New Jersey and crushed us with like five or six threes in the finals. So, and even with the Spurs, you look at all those other complimentary players around the big three that allowed them to play and be who they were. Same thing in today's game. You know, you look at Giannis and those guys over in, in Milwaukee, you look at the Bucks, I mean, the Nets. Right in the big three, it's always the complementary players allowing the stars the court space and the whatever they need to be able to be superstars. And I think that's what we're seeing today's game and how it's going to play out in this series in particular. Like, you know, how is Giannis and, and Middleton going to play? They're going to be great. But then it's also you throw in Holiday, you throw in Lopez. Now, in today's game, you throw in PJ Tucker and his role in how we play. It's always the complementary players that make a difference in these close games. You mentioned a complimentary players, and Kerry, maybe it's because UB Brown's an encyclopedia, and anytime he does a game, I, it doesn't matter now. I feel like I learned something new. 
He's always subscribed to the theory that players like three through eight in a rotation play so much better at home as opposed to on the road. You buy into that? Because I do a thousand percent. One thousand percent. Why is that the case? Just comfort level? Sleep That's why head? they're complimentary players. <laughs> it's because the pressure when you're on the road. You, you hear that crowd today, how crazy it was? And you go to the Barclays Center last week, it was nuts there. And you can watch the Garden Knicks play. It's, it was nuts at home. But then you got to go on the road. You got to deal with those elements of the, you know, familiarity of not being in the same building. You know, the, the gym is just different. They're rooting against you. You know, Brooklyn, we have guys behind the free throw, behind the uh, basket, yelling and screaming at you when you're shooting free throws. So it's it's definitely, um, you know, more more challenging to, to play well and to do what you do as a role player when you're, when you're at home, you know, versus on the road. As a guy who played in New Jersey, and now I'm in Brooklyn, I'm 10 minutes away from the Barclays Center, give or take. Even though I'll carry full disclosure, I grew up with Ewing. I grew up with Starks. Now I'm a big-time Nick guy. But Brooklyn now, being a part of New York City, is that something you look back on and say, man, I wish I were a Brooklyn net? Absolutely. I mean, you remember our team from the early team? We had three seasons where we were just probably the most fun team in the whole year. Yeah, you were high-flying, man. I was was envious. I was jealous because you kicked the Knicks' ass anytime you played them, let's be honest. You turned the ball over. We gave it to Jason Kidd. You better watch out. We were (laughs) – those guys were running the court, the wings, and dunk. It was so much fun to play. And so – yeah, you know, you had the family crowd in New Jersey. You know, the Meadowlands was just not the place where you go to Barclays Center now and you and you hear the, the enthusiasm and, you you know, you look up in the stands and it's full with capacity every single night, even a weekday. That's what you really want from a player's perspective. You know, you want to have that home court advantage. Listen, when we were playing and you go to Portland and you played in the old Rose Garden on a Wednesday night, it was crazy in that building. You go to Sacramento. <laughs> and you hear the cowbells behind the bench on a regular Tuesday afternoon evening. That was what you really want as a player. And so the Nets now are very fortunate. I tell those guys whenever I meet them, just listen, just be happy you're playing in the Barclays Center instead of playing in the Meadowlands. Who is the guy for you? And you played in this great era of basketball. Don't get me wrong, Terry. I love watching the modern day NBA, but like 90s basketball, man. It's when I was a kid. That's my coming of age. 90s, early 2000s, you name it. Who is the guy for you going up against him when you came into the league? It was like the holy blank moment. It had to be Jordan, right? Had to be. Oh, yeah. Right, yeah. No question. It was definitely Jordan. Um, you know, those 70 win Bulls teams, are you kidding me? Yeah, you played them in the playoffs, too. That's another thing. You guys got played swept, that. Right? You know, got swept. <laughs> but, you, you know, you, listen, no shame in that. You and many other teams. No shame. No shame. No shame, in shame at all. I mean, you're Hall of Famers on the court, Hall of Famers on the bench. Are you kidding me? So, um, and as a second-year player, that was a that was a fun experience. But yeah, Jordan, the R around him, um, the attention, how he played, you know, didn't say much, but just crushed you. It was fun as a young player. It was great. So he didn't talk a lot of trash. Zero. Didn't say wow. a word. Wow. Didn't okay. say a word. You know, I guess he picked his spots, you know? He Jordan was just spots. waiting for you to talk to him, and that's when he got it. Well, got and, it you know, Van Gundy always used to say that he'd try to play nice with guys. You know, he'd invite him into Space Jam. He'll train with you during the summer just because he wanted to get that intel to go and kick your ass when he matched up with you and accounted, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Jordan looked for that edge. You know, he wanted to find that motivation to play um, because he was just so good. He was so talented. He was so smart. He was definitely the smartest player I ever played against. I think I, I know the, I think I know the answer to this question. Go ahead. 95, 96 Bulls or the Shaq Kobe Lakers? Oh, Bulls. Yeah, Bulls. I, Bulls. I should have known the answer to that question. Yeah, yeah. That's a, I, I just think that the way that they played as a unit and the way you know, obviously Jordan scored his 30 points plus, 
but it was just the way that they ran. It was they knew they they bought more into the triangle offense than the Shaq Kobe Lakers, and so that was harder to guard. The way that they set screens and moved and passed, it was definitely harder. Final one. Brooklyn's going to win this series. Let's assume no Irving. Let's assume no Harden. And they got to no. get through. I, I'm throwing, Gary, I'm giving you worst Oof. case scenario here. Man. Who's the guy, though? If Brooklyn's going to win, KD aside, we know he has to be great if those other two are not going to be there. Give me an X factor, though, for Brooklyn. What needs to happen? An X factor, I, I just think, listen, the threes that make a difference in today's game. You know, you saw uh, the Bucks today knock down threes, you know, at a high rate, definitely in the first half. Um, so if Harris can get hot, when I say hot, I mean like hot, like lights out. He's been ice cold thus far. But if he can find his range and knock down threes, that's going to relieve a lot of core space. And that's definitely Jeff Green. I think those two players in, in their play, if they can just play exceptional basketball, especially at home in Brooklyn, they'll, they'll win the series without those other two players. But, man, that's going to be a tough feat to do. Even, even if they're hot, I just think it's going to be hard to beat the Bucs without Kyrie and, and James Harden. They're just that good of a ball club. I got to know this. As a Villanova guy, who'd you hate the most? Georgetown, Syracuse, UConn. Oh, uh, UConn. Oh, UConn. we got that. We might have that in common then. UConn. There we go. I, it depended on my mood, to be honest with you, either Georgetown or UConn for us. It was I love it. I'm talking like I was. I had more game. respect for Georgetown because it was more smash mouth basketball, and I didn't mind that. But UConn, they had a couple crybabies over there, and you no know, Calhoun was on the sides. Definitely, definitely UConn. And now that rivalry is renewed. So when Kerry Kittles gets on yes. at a Villanova game, he yes. can root against UConn. It's kind of that's kind of nice. Just saying. I like, I like that. I like that. But it's never the old Big East is gone. It's I gone. miss it. R.I.P. Hey, listen. Thanks so much for doing this. Continued success with the podcast, Thank you. and Thank uh, you. let's we'll do this again. Yes, thank you. There you have it. That's Kerry Kittles. we got a lot more to do. New York, New York. We're coming right back. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on Cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there, just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier, thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive, or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side-by-side. Side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. That was a fun spot with Kerry Kittles, and I'm very relieved to know that Kerry does not look at Syracuse as his number one rival. So now we can still be buddies, even though I have some great friends who are UConn guys and even a couple of Georgetown people. I mean, listen, I hate Georgetown. I hate them. 
Like, even with Syracuse now in the ACC, my hatred for Georgetown will always be number one. But, hey, you know, Syracuse and Georgetown could get along, and the Yankees and the Red Sox, and me and Simmons could get along. And, you know, it's like Yvonne Drago and Rocky at the end. You know, everybody could change. That's not a deal. That's not a deal. Now, speaking of change, I know many of you who are listening to New York, New York, who are avid fans of the podcast and avid fans of mine, and you happen to root for the New York Yankees, I bet after last week, many of you are waiting for me to melt down again. Last week, I admit, I had a little bit of a meltdown. After the Yankees got swept and lost to what they did to the Red Sox, you got that unfiltered, raw emotion. Here's the problem, though. If you're thinking that's going to happen again after the Yankees go and put together yet another losing week. Losing that game Thursday to the Twins. Saturday, all you need to know about the Yankees is only the Yankees in 2021 could be down five runs, hit a dramatic three-run, ninth-inning home run for Mumeu. He finally shows a pulse for the first time all year, and yet they still lose the game. If that doesn't sum up the Yankees in 2021, I don't know what will. And then on Sunday, they just lay a complete egg. I mean, they can't hit Aaron Noah. Domingo Herman stinks. He gets lit up. Odor doesn't know how to run the bases. They're a bad baseball team. From what we have seen, 60-plus games into this 2021 season, the Yankees, quite frankly, have not been very good. This is not a fluke. Look at the run differential. If anything, their run differential and what it was, Probably means they should have a couple more losses on the ledger, if we're being perfectly frank. The Yankees have stunk. If you're going to expect me all summer to be ranting and raving about this team, you got another thing coming. Because sooner or later, there reaches a point of acceptance. Okay? I am now resigned and accepting of the fact that the Yankees are not particularly good. Maybe that changes. Maybe something happens that is drastic. But for those who think that the Yankees are going to fire Aaron Boone, they didn't fire him last week. They got swept by the Boston freaking Red Sox. They went 2-5 and five against Tampa and Boston, and they didn't make a managerial change. So what now? Because they lost a couple games to the Phillies? And they lost the Thursday game to the Twins. Now they're going to make a managerial change? Don't see it. Don't count on it. And let me make this clear. Those of you out there who are advocating a change, I don't think you're crazy. I feel your pain. We had a similar sentiment last week. Something's got to give and something's got to change. And if you're Following along to these Aaron Boone press conferences, and I got to give the Yankee media credit. I, I, got, I went after whoever covered the presser on Sunday, and I learned this, and I should know this. Sundays, you always get a different mishmash of a crowd, especially if the game is at home, because you have reporters taking off and whatnot. So maybe you didn't have the normal Yankee beat last Sunday against the Red Sox. That can happen. But this weekend, Yankee media... Give him credit. Meredith was back. My guy Brian Hoke was back. 
they asked Booney some tough, tough questions. And normally when you get Aaron Boone after these games, he's very happy-go-lucky, no big deal, we're going to be fine, I believe in these guys, blah, blah, blah. I can sense the frustration now. And unlike his predecessor, Mr. Girardi, who probably got a wonderful laugh in sticking it to the Yankees Saturday and Sunday. And for anybody who hasn't seen the Philadelphia Phillies all year, you probably thought they were like a good baseball team watching them against the Yankees. They're not. It's a product of what the Yankees are. And it's being real with what the Yankees are. But Girardi would always have these sort of interactions with reporters. Hard-nosed, stickler, definitely didn't like the whole idea of sitting down, gaming and game out, and schmoozing with the media. Like, he got tired of it. On the other hand, Boone, he loves it. He loves schmoozing with these guys. Mr. Sunday Night Baseball, batting stances, happy-go-lucky. Listen to this. Doesn't exactly sound like happy-go-lucky Aaron Boone. Let's hear it. Uh, Ken kind of touched on what I was going to ask, but do you sense there's a fatigue in the dugout, maybe a complacency as these losses pile up where uh, guys are just almost getting used to losing here? No. Why not? I I, I know them too well, and and I don't think there's any getting used to freaking losing. Hell no. Get hell out of here with that. Booty get a little snippy. I sense a little testiness from the Yankee manager. Oh, I sense it, all right. Not exactly happy-go-lucky Aaron right there. First of all, good. Good on Brian Hoke, first and foremost. Because the performance on the field, from what we've seen over 60 games, is that there is that sort of complacency. I absolutely believe it. I think most Yankee fans believe it. It's a real thing. That's for starters. Actions, Aaron Boone, speak louder than words. You could tell me your team is not complacent, but when I see the base running gas over and over again, when I see the level of performance with the talent that's on this roster, that yes is overrated. That yes is not as good as I thought going into the year. That's all true. You're telling me the Yankees should only be a game over 500 right now with this group? I mean, Aaron Boone would tell you no way. So for a media member or for somebody like myself to call that into question, it's totally fair. It's totally justified. And Aaron, my advice to you, if you don't like it, tell your baseball team, snap the hell out of it. Because whether it's tomorrow, the All-Star break, or at the end of this year, if it's more to stand for the Yankees, he cannot be the manager next year. And then we start looking hard at Brian Cashman and what his future may be. The Yankees are a mess. Long story short, they're a mess. No F-bombs today. No, I'm blank and sick. Nah, nah. Been there, done that. But more of the same. Lousy, lousy, lousy baseball. You know what was not lousy baseball? What we saw the Mets over the weekend against the Padres. And I know for many of you, the decision by Louis Rojas, pushing Familia 40-plus pitches, maybe taking Lucchese out after the fifth inning when he was pitching a good game because they had the, the predetermined plan that I love hearing about so much. Maybe let the eyes tell the story, Louis Rojas. 
you got a tax bullpen. You don't have Edwin Diaz. You don't have Aaron Loop. Push your starter when he's cruising, when he's humming, when he's doing his thing against his former team. That's not my thing long and hard about. But managers in this day and age don't want to do this. So it was a bad loss for the Mets. I don't know what Rojas was doing pushing Familia as long as he did and the inevitable was walking in a run and then boom, you make the pitching change. And Tatis, who you knew was going to get hot sooner rather than later, I did a betting hit on Friday for MLB. And I told you, listen, he ain't going to homer against DeGrom. He's going to have a couple in this series. Saturday goes Yahtzee. Sunday, Grand Salami. Too good a player. He's just too damn good to hold down over a period of time. So his bomb and his blast ends up being the difference in the game. It's poor managing. But it should not in any way take away from what the Mets did this weekend, where they take two out of three from one of the better teams in the National League, if not the best team potentially in the National League. DeGrom, listen. You know, like I've run out of like adjectives to describe the Yankees stinking up the joint. I've run out of adjectives to just shower and praise DeGrom and all the uh, brilliance that he's bringing to the table. I've run out of the adjectives. Special. It's Pedro-esque. It's Koufax-esque. It's Gibson-esque. Whatever the hell you want to call it. That's how dominant DeGrom has been. But that, combined with Stroman on Saturday, getting Francisco Lindor going, and I knew... It was only a matter of time before Francisco Lindor was going to get hot. And if you're the Mets, you would have signed on the dotted line and then some for getting two out of three this weekend. Bad loss on Sunday, yes. Two out of three, doing what you need to do. Beautiful. Absolute thing of beauty. Two out of three against that team, the hell of a weekend. And the Mets got reinforcements on the way. Right now, you feel good about the state of affairs with the Mets. Can't say that about the Yankees. Now, I expect because there's still a whole lot of misery out in the air regarding the Yankee fan and where they're at right now. I don't think the Mets fan is going to be totally distraught after Sunday. The Nets fan, eh, there's not as many of them. The Yankee fan is going to be out in full force. I have a funny feeling. Funny feeling. So let's get it going with voicemails. What do we got? Hey, JJ, Eric down in Florida. Uh, the Yankees just look like a whole bunch of bums right now. I mean, that, getting swept in these two games by the Phillies is an absolute joke. It looked embarrassing in the process. Uh, Boone should probably be fired after this weekend alone. If you don't want to even lump everything else from this season together. But this is just getting annoying to watch. I mean, it's past annoying. It's just fucking atrocious. Uh, hopefully the Islanders can bring something uh, better for the rest of this weekend and a lot of something to celebrate tonight. Take it easy. Keep up the good work. See ya. Well, I appreciate those kind words. And yeah, that sense of complacency and not complacency where you're humming and you're cruising the other way around is what you're seeing out of the Yankees. This is a team that's going through the motions. This is a team that needs drastic change. You're not going to get it with an in-season managerial firing. I would love for that to be the case. Because if Aaron Boone's contract's up at the end of the year, I would be willing to try anything, okay? This is the sort of move that if you tried it now at this point, well, what's the difference? What is the downside? What would be my caveat to anybody who would say, oh, well, well why, why would you make the move? Because I've seen what I've seen, not just over 60 games this year, 
60 games last year, the Yankees were not a particularly good baseball team. They ran the entire operation back. They made no changes offensively. What, they swapped Corey Kluber for Masahiro Tanaka? And I've been a guy waiting for Jamison Tyon to show up. I mean, Jamison Tyon stinks. He's pitching to a 5-7-5 ERA, and yet he's getting starts every fifth day. Why? 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 Because Garcia's not pitching well in the minor leagues? At least Garcia last year pitched his ass off for the Yankees and saved the Yankees' season when they needed somebody to step up. I'd rather see Garcia stick up the joint than Tyon at this point. I know, J-Mo for JJ. I want to support. Cancer survivor. Really good dude. He stinks right now. Stinks. Does not deserve to be in the rotation. Yankees are exhausting, folks. Can't stress this enough. They are joyless. They are miserable to watch day in and day out. Miserable. I mean, I'm going to have the countdown of uh, week one, Tua against Cam or two against Mac Jones and me uh, putting a bet on the line with Simmons. That's kind of where we're at at this point in time. Sad but true. Who's up next? JJ, it's the Coney Island Cobra, and I think after today's game, the Yankees need to fire Aaron fucking Boone. Get him the fuck out of here. It's over. Enough's enough. And I'll be honest with you. I don't know who's going to change the direction of this season, but they might as well fire that George Costanza fuck Brian Cashman as well. Enough's enough. This team needs to uh, rebuild. They've they've been the problem with this team is they need to tear it down. They've they basically have have let it be status quo for a long time. My question to you is, other than a, a Buck Showalter, who would you bring in here to jumpstart this team or reinvigorate this organization? Because right now we are as dead as a fucking doornail. Take care, my friend. The Coney Island Cobra. Coming out hot. Buck Showalter's my guy. He's got Yankee DNA running through his veins. I think he'd be the perfect guy to bring in in some capacity. I don't think the Yankees are firing Brian Cashman. Now, what we've seen from this team over the last few years is they have regressed to a point now where they're a 500 baseball team. Is that going to call Cashman's job into question? Absolutely. To me... Everything is on the table for the Yankees right about now, okay? Everything. That goes for the GM, the manager, players on his team, everything. The question is, what are you going to see as far as midseason moves? Are the Yankees drastically going to add to this team? Because Tampa is running away with the American League East. The Red Sox have been a better team than the Yankees. And the team they're going to play Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday... The Yankees have not beat the last two years. Toronto is third or fourth in the American League or in all baseball. I don't even know what the stat is. The run scored. Translation, they're scoring a shitload of runs, okay? Guerrero is mashing. Bichette is mashing. They're scoring all these runs. They've gotten nothing out of George Springer, who we know is a major, major difference maker. So what is the Toronto lineup going to look like if they add Springer and they go add a pitcher or two at the trade deadline? How's this getting better for the Yankees? That's what I want to know. So the Yankees, to the point where they say, we're all in, we're making moves, we have to get better this year, do they kind of stick with the status quo? Or would they ever go down the road? I can't believe I'm suggesting this with this team. 
when they think about minor sales. Selling high on Gary Sanchez. Brenton has come back. Maybe they put him on the open market. Do they see what's out there for Raldis Chapman? I would be shocked if the Yankees sell. I think I'd be more shocked at the Yankees selling off talent than I would be an in-season managerial firing. And you guys know I don't expect that to be the case. When you're this bad, though, all options, all possibilities got to be on the table. So I feel your pain, Matty. I do. But I don't have that guy for you at this point. I really don't. I know I'm in on the buck bandwagon. What, getting another, you know, Ivy League GM? I know people are going to say Theo Epstein. Theo Epstein is not taking the Yankee job. First of all, he's super tight with Brian Cashman. Second of all, I think Theo is kind of over the idea of running a big league team. I think Theo wants to be a commissioner. I think Theo has his sights set on bigger and better and more power to him. He's already a Hall of Famer. What does he, what does he have to prove running the Yankees? That ain't happening. So this is the brain trust for now. I still think Cashman's going to be here. And I think Boone is probably done at the end of this year. I think the Yankees will take an L on that, and he'll be the sacrificial lamb. Who's up next? JJ, what's up? Robin, listen. You know what? There are so many issues with this New York Yankees team. It's not even funny. But I have to hear you unload on Giancarlo Stanton. $32 million a year. Can't play the outfield in two NL games over the weekend. It's pathetic. Can you put on a baseball glove and get in left field and take four or five ABs in these two games? For God's sakes, it's ridiculous. And the Yankees just make excuses for everything. This is a soft, you know what it is? This is a soft organization. They're just soft. Because if they weren't soft, they'd be like, you know what, John Carlo? Put on your glove. Get in left field. Take five A, four or five ABs Saturday and Sunday and shut up. What, are you going to pull a hammy or a calf just because you're in left field for a few innings? Give me a break. I get that. I totally get it. Somebody making $30 million a year can't play the outfield. It's beyond a joke. But it speaks to a point that we've made on this show since we've started. And it's a point that I've made the last couple of years in talking about the New York Yankees. The fact that John Carlos Stanton has broken down the way he's broken down, where he misses way too much time, and he's missing way too many games, combined with the fact that he cannot play the outfield, it has hamstrung the Yankees in more ways than one. And I know Stan had a great postseason, and I know he can carry a team for a couple weeks, but if you could do it over again, there is no way in the world you would suggest to me that you want John Carlos Stanton long-term on this team. There's just no way. Like Michael Brantley or John Carlos Stanton, who would be a better fit currently on the Yankees? Anybody who would tell me John Carlos Stanton is totally lost and is just a flat-out fool because they don't watch the team day in and day out. And they're a sucker for 500-foot home runs. Whoop-de-doo. And a hot streak that you get once a month, give or take. And then he misses another month. And he can't play the field. It's tiring. It's tiring. And when Judge misses Sunday's game with back spasms, that's the perfect opportunity for John Carlos Stanton to be out in the field. 
I get wanting to play Andujar every day. Andujar needs to play every day. Stanton not being able to play nine innings in the outfield is a joke. Amen to that. Who's up next? Hey, JJ. It's Ben from Manhattan. Uh, I just finished up watching uh, another terrible Yankees series, and I was wondering, uh, I was wondering last week too, but I was wondering if you think this is the time maybe uh, Boone or Thames goes on the off day. I'm not dumb enough to think that they'll fire Cashman as much as I wish that would happen. Have a good night. Thank you, and uh, let's suffer through this together. Yeah, it feels like therapy every single time we're doing one of these podcasts on a weekend. Because the Yankees, you know, I saw this. They have not won a weekend game going all the way back to the White Sox series in the middle of May. Because they got swept by the Tigers. They got swept by the Red Sox. They did not play this Friday. And then they lose Saturday and Sunday to Philadelphia. So for the last three weekends, it's been like Yankee therapy on New York, New York. I get that. I feel that pain. I guess it's more likely that Marcus Timms would get fired, the hitting coach. If that's going to do it for you, more power to you. I'd be shocked if we're doing the podcast on Tuesday and Aaron Boone is fired. Shocked. I'd give you like 10,000 to 1 odds on that. 10,000 to 1. Now, I'm not paying it out because, listen, we got things to pay for these days. But if I had to set a line on it, if I had to go all bookmaker on you, 10,000 to 1. Don't expect it to be the case. Off-season, different story. Yankees, because of their stubbornness, they're not making an in-season managerial change. It's just not going to happen. As much as you may want it to happen, as much as I might want it to happen, it's not going to happen. Who's up next? JJ, it's Anthony and Syosset. Um, It's 7-0 Phillies as I leave this voicemail. Uh, Listen, I'm sure they're like 2005 comes to mind when they started 11-19, but that team had guts and leadership. 2008 comes to mind. Obviously, they missed the playoffs. Um, comes to mind in terms of years where it was this late in the season, this late into June, where they were a 500 team, because I think they're another loss away from that. Uh, but I think that any fan that watches this team will tell you that there's no, not only there's no hope, but w- what is the point? At this stage, what is the point? You know, you've said it on this podcast before, and I've said it in previous voicemails. There's no accountability and there's no leadership. This is not a championship-caliber team, but it also is not a team that should be 500 as we enter the final days of June. So the question now is, is the ownership group, the front office group, are they this prideful? Do they have egos that are so big that they cannot admit that this fucking ship is sinking? Get rid of the coach, but it makes no difference. No difference if you don't get rid of the general manager as well. Now, if you want to tell me that they're going to go down with the ship, fine. But if they're going to go down with the ship and it means they're out at the end of the year, you better trade some pieces within the season and start building. There's a strike next year. You're not winning this year. Start building for three to four years from now. Anthony, I'd be stunned if the Yankees are in a position where they're shipping off players. But I don't think you're crazy for suggesting it if we're going to see another two or three weeks like we've just experienced, and basically another two or three months like we experienced. If the Yankees are at the end of July. So right now, today, it is June the 13th. At the end of July, the Yankees are around 500. They're 5-6 out of that second wild card. They're 8-9 games back first place. I will come on the podcast and suggest what you just brought to the table. 
that guys who are not going to be a part of the long-term vision of this franchise should be traded. Just think about that for a minute. We're having a reasonable, fair conversation about the Yankees selling. And it's not that Anthony or myself are acting all sorts of crazy. Our actions are justified. The team stinks. They're unlikable. They're unwatchable. They're awful. I can't think of, in my lifetime, maybe the first two months, three months of 2016, a more unlikable Yankee team. I really can't. Maybe it was the expectations. Maybe it's the last couple of years of losing in the playoffs. But the good feelings I had about this group, gone. Gone. It's tough. Watching them night in and night out is a chore. It's draining. It's very, very draining. And that's the sense I get from talking to most of you. Here's what's going to be eye-opening to Hal Steinbrenner. Now you got 100% capacity. If the Yankees are playing like this, nobody's going to be at Yankee Stadium. Summer in New York City, summer out in the Hamptons or at the Jersey Shore and Montauk and Jones Beach and nightlife being back, why are you going to go watch a disappointing, miserable Yankee team? And when they have 100% capacity and there's 15,000 people there and half of them are hooting and hollering, demanding change, that is when you'll see this owner decide to act because it's all about the bottom line with this owner. That's his number one priority. Team's not good. He's going to feel the heat. Two to go. Who's up next? Hey, JJ. It's Nico calling over here from the Bay Area. Look, just finished uh, watching the Yankees-Phillies game right now. Um, Great to see DJ tie that game up in the top of the ninth. But, look, we lose this game to Segura hitting that infield single, which, by the way, what a stop by Urshela. But why – how – how do we not walk him in that situation to set up the double play to end the inning? How? How is that not the first thing? Boom goes, intentional walk, let's move on to the next batter. Because at this point, uh, look, I get it. You, you're you're going to say, uh, oh, you know, we, we were expecting Chapman to just strike him out and we get another out. But look, in that situation, you walk him and you set up the double play. To me, every single time, every single time time with runners on second and third there and one out I just I don't understand it I don't uh, I I can't wait to hear Boone after the game talk about well you know we made some good hits and tomorrow we're gonna be right back up and we're gonna do what we can it's it's insane it's it's just fucking insane JJ gotta hear your thoughts on that all right later Nico I wanted Segura walked as well because my thing there even though you have the bases loaded and a walk would win the game having that force out at the plate is gigantic and Riamuto, to me, is a double play candidate. Segura is not. I wanted the bases loaded there. The bigger issue for the Yankees, though, on Saturday is that in extra innings, runner on second, nobody out, they don't move him a peep. They can't move him an inch. So we can nitpick in the bottom half of the inning, and we're going to agree about the bottom half of the inning. Runner on second, nobody out, you have to score. And when you don't score with this dopey new extra inning rule, you're going to lose. Paul for the course for the Yankees in 2021. They've lost their fair share of extra inning games. They've lost plenty of other games too. 
Last but not least, who do we got? JJ, Eric Dan in Florida. I'm watching this uh, bottom of the first inning with the Yankees and Phillies, and I don't think I'd be calling you this early in the game. Why is Tyone still in the lineup at this point? Guy can't go through an order three times. He's a five-inning pitcher at best. And here he's going to be lucky to record an out. This is just absolutely pathetic. Two nothing, we might as well turn it off. Keep up the good work. Hopefully the Yankees can eventually turn it around. See ya. Yankee pitching all of a sudden has become a problem. Everything regarding the Yankees is a problem. You notice the common theme, by the way, with all these voicemails? The Yankee fan has had it. I'm not alone. It's good to know that we are all in this together. I like a little unity when I can feel a little unity. The Yankee fan has had it with their baseball team. Had it! I didn't think that any more anger could come out of me, but, you know, with each passing week, never say never. That's all I'm going to say. Never say never. Tyon does not belong in the rotation. He's pitching a 5-7-5 year right. Whether it's Davey Garcia... And they had a setback. We didn't even get to this. Think about this weekend. As bad as it was, as poorly as the Yankees played, one of the glimmers of hope is that Luis Severino is coming back. Well, Severino and his rehab start on Saturday. Has a groin issue. Has to get carried off the field. You can push back that timetable another month now. Because not only does Seve have to build up his arm, now he can't throw for the next couple weeks. Groins are tricky for pitchers because you're doing the push-off and whatnot. Used to see it all the time with Roger Clemens, all the leg issues he used to have. Hammies, groins, it's tricky. Very, very tricky. So the Yankees were thinking they were going to get Severino back before the All-Star break. That's out. And they could use him. Their pitching has been their saving grace all year. It's the only reason they're over 500. Tyone, can't get anybody out. Michael King, not that good. Herman. Shaky on Sunday. Montgomery, solid, not spectacular. Yeah, I had to expect there was going to be some sense of regression for the Yankee pitching staff, but they can't afford it. They can't afford any slip-ups right now with that predicament. And when we set the stage for the week and what's coming up, not pleasant when you got to face a red-hot Toronto Blue Jay lineup over the next couple of days. A Toronto Blue Jay team that has owned you over the last two years. So, speaking of what we have coming up this week. A pivotal game five for the Nets. A make or break game to me for the Brooklyn Nets. They lose game five. They're not winning this series. I think Milwaukee will get it done in six. I think Brooklyn has to find a way to get this fifth game. And they may have to do so without Irving and without Harden. That is not ideal. You have... The Yankees in Toronto or in Buffalo via Toronto, whatever. Wherever the hell the Yankees are playing the Blue Jays, they can't beat the Blue Jays. Whether it's in Toronto, whether it's in Buffalo, whether it's in Dunedin, whether it's at the stadium or on Mars, they don't beat the Blue Jays. They don't beat anybody in the American League East unless their name is the Orioles, basically. That's what we've seen this year. They have Cole going in one of the three games. Great. Do I have the utmost confidence the Yankees are winning this series? No chance. No chance. Toronto and Oakland this week. No picnic. Do not be surprised if the Yankees are under 500 by the end of this week. That's kind of my hot take going into the week. I don't, actually, I don't even think it's a hot take. A hot take would be something that's kind of eye-opening. This is not eye-opening when you watch the Yankees play every day. So don't expect a whole lot of fun for the Yankees this week. But then again, any week involving the Yankees does not necessarily bring you a lot of joy. 
and a lot of ecstasy these days. It is what it is. Now, for the Mets, it's been a ton of fun so far this year. It's been a team exceeding expectations. It's a team that's going to get healthier as these weeks go on. Maybe some good news on Jeff McNeil in the not-too-distant future. And for this week, four against the Cubs, who have surprised me, quite frankly. They had a good weekend against the Cardinals. They're scoring a lot of runs. They've been better than I ever could have imagined. I thought they'd be in the predicament the Yankees are in. Stale, talking about changes, talking about blowing it up. I think the Cubbies are saying, the hell with that. We want to win the National League Central. And maybe we'll keep a couple of these guys. So four games with the Cubs and then four with a bad national team. And you're playing a doubleheader Saturday because, remember, that first series of the year wiped out because of COVID. So they're trying to creatively get these games in against a team that I think will be selling off pieces at the deadline. That means Scherzer if he gets back. That means Schwaber, who's been hitting as of late. Basically, everybody not named Juan Soto and Trey Turner could be had, I think, from a national standpoint. And if you're the Mets, listen, keep on keeping on. Nothing to report there. We have a couple of interesting game fours in the NBA that I'm looking forward to. And I'm going to be down at the Borgata on Monday night. I'll be into those two games. Sixers, and then we got Utah Clippers game four. Philly looked terrific in game three. And the fact that Philly's bench showed up the way that they did, I think it's a great sign. Listen, their game plan against Atlanta has just been far better than the game plan you saw from the Knickerbockers. And it helps when you have more talented players. That, to me, is the bottom line here. They have a lot more talent to work with. They are a physical, physical basketball team. And this line's already gone from three to three and a half. I will absolutely be betting Philly in game four. I think they go up 3-1, and I think they take care of business. Now, the Clipper-Utah game. Clippers had their moment in game three. They get pounded by the public in game four. Line's gone from five to four and a half. I have it circled. I will absolutely be on Utah plus the four and a half. And I might even sprinkle in a Jazz money line beat if I'm feeling frisky enough. I know for sure I'm going to be taking Utah plus the four and a half. So I have Philly laying the points, Utah plus the points. Jeff Money, who has been red hot, might I add. I give credit where credit is due. Jeff Money has been muy caliente. I hope we have a couple of family plays. I went against the family with Suns and Nuggets. Didn't go so well on Friday night. Jeff Money, what do you got? What up, JJ? Jeff Money here with a handicapper picks. This is going to be for Monday, June the 14th. So tomorrow, I like the Clippers minus the four and a half over the Jazz. I'm going to go back with them. They play terrific in uh, game three, so I think they're going to tie up the series. So we're going to go with the Clippers minus the four and a half. That's my only play for tomorrow. All right, JJ, I'm out of here. Let's go. We have another heads-up challenge between yours truly and Jeff Money. He thinks the Clippers even up this series. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. I know this game four is going to be super tight. I'm staying those four and a half points and I'm running with those four and a half points. So I'm giving you a favorite and I'm giving you a dog before we say goodbye. And I have no idea what the game five line for Brooklyn and Milwaukee is going to be. I can't even speculate on it because too much uncertainty with everything going on with Kyrie Irving and who the hell knows what's going on with James Harden. Fun show. We're back Tuesday night and it will be a late one. I'm telling you this right now, right out of the gate. We will be probably coming to you Wednesday morning with New York, New York, just because you got a late net game. 
You got a late Islander game. The baseball, you never know how late that's going to go. Hey, we got away with one with a Sunday where everything was done by 5.30, 6 o'clock. You can't expect that to be the case every single time we do one of these bad boys. But we're back rolling on Tuesday. And it will be a very telling Tuesday for that NBA franchise that plays in Brooklyn. Great work, gentlemen. All the love. Folks, JJ out. Chatting with you on Tuesday. Be good, everybody.